All right. Hey, everybody. I hope you're well today. And um, again, what a privilege it is to worship with you, even in this virtual space. Today, what I have the honor of doing is introducing to you a great man of God. His name is Peter Dusan, who's been a friend of mine for many, many years. As part of our Greater Every Nation family of churches, Peter has been on the tip of the spear, literally training hundreds and reaching thousands with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For over a decade, he was not only a campus minister, but also a lead pastor down at one of our great churches in the Texas area. And after leading that church and raising up other leaders to pastor it, he's now devoted himself to really traveling throughout the body of Christ to minister to not only the gospel to the lost world, but to really strengthen the church of Jesus with the good news of the gospel, that the good news of, the, of our salvation is really a joy to be had and a joy to be shared. And even as he shares today, we hope that you're unlocked in that joy of not only the salvation that God's given to you, but how to share it in a life-giving manner with others around you. So um, again, I can't speak enough of uh, Peter's character, his kindness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes out of him. And today, it's going to be a great uh, message as we continue our series, Life of Faith, particularly today, the life of faith as we share the good news of Jesus with others. God bless you. Good morning. My name is Peter Dusan, and I'm recording this sermon from my home in Texas for the online portion of our Second City Chicago gathering, and then I'm going to be joining all y'all in person. I, I served for years in campus ministry with Every Nation Campus, and then for 12 years pastored our Every Nation Church in San Marcos. And then in 2020, we passed the church off to Pastor Alberto Lopez. In the last few years, I've been serving in full-time evangelism, serving in campus ministries and churches by helping to expand our collective witness. I'm excited to be with y'all today. Now, first I want to share how special Pastor Rollin is to my life and to my family. It was March of 2008, and I was in the middle of a really weird lupus flare. It was my third year of campus ministry, my second year of marriage, and I was terminally sick with this lupus flare. And for my wife and I, before we considered more intense or even dangerous treatment options, we tried to get pregnant. And for a long time, we just couldn't. So this is the middle of all that, March of 2008, and I took a bunch of students to a campus ministry conference. There are ENC conference at the time, it was called Campus Harvest in North Carolina. And the Saturday session, before the Saturday session that, that year, I was, I was praying, I was asking God to to move in the hearts of our students, and also to do a miracle in my body. That morning, it was 7 a.m., I was in the Kings Park uh, Global Prayer Room, all alone, crying out to God, and just literally crying, when in walks Pastor Rollin. And all y'all who know Pastor Rollin, you know exactly what happened next. He just joined me and started crying as well. And as we're both weeping together before the Lord, he grabs me and he prays, Jesus, I pray that Peter and his wife will be pregnant by the end of this month. Pretty specific and bold prayer. Y'all, two weeks later, I was at my rheumatologist appointment and my rheumatologist could not figure out 
why the lupus flare and inflammation in my, in my body was completely gone. The next week we found out we were pregnant with our first daughter, Hadassah. And so for us, the miracle of that was confirmed a few years later when we couldn't get pregnant again. And our fertility doctor confirmed like, hey, you shouldn't have conceived the first child a few years ago. And for us, when we adopted our son Asa almost 10 years ago, Jesus reminded us who is the only one who ultimately gets the, the final diagnosis because we conceived yet two more times, Alma and then Bethlehem. So that's why when you see our family picture, you see our, my 13-year-old daughter Hadassah, which is taller than my wife Elisa, and then three other little kids that are roughly the same size, ages seven, eight, and nine. And for me, seeing the miracle of seeing that provision come in there, when there was desperation and hunger, God loves to do that, and He loves to use people that join us in the redemptive moments like Pastor Rollin. And that's when I come and visit Pastor Rollin and B and the family and our church. For me, it's like coming home. And before I get into our scripture, I want to share more of my story about how the faith in Jesus, my walk with Jesus was initiated because that's going to give more context for the one scripture, the one verse I really want to preach today from 1 Peter. You can prepare in your Bibles to get to 1 Peter. But I grew up in a professional baseball family. My dad was a professional baseball player, and that was my entire identity. I had no other things, for instance, kind of uh, monitoring how I would live my life. I wanted to be a baseball player, and there was nothing else tempering my immature desires, for instance. I honestly thought that the only people who were religious, or in my opinion, tried to follow the rules, were either old or ugly. And so, I, I, me being young and beautiful, I didn't need to concern myself with all that religious rule following. Until September 17, 1997, I found myself in a campus ministry gathering. And it was a mysterious environment. To be clear, I wasn't there because, operatively, I wanted to be there. As much as I was there because Josh, my friend, wouldn't shut up about Jesus and what happened in his life. So I was at this campus ministry because I wanted Josh to leave me alone. And yet, being there in the, myster the mystery of the gathering of the saints, seeing in the mirror of what I was created to be, the joy and the peace and the passion and the adventure on these young students, and coincidentally, not ugly young students, like the, 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 one of the girls there would become my wife, Elisa, after years of rejecting me, but I... I wouldn't relent in my pursuit of her. And uh, seeing in, in the, the joy of what I was meant to be, I heard the gospel. I heard the gospel. See, before this, I couldn't see my wife, Elisa, or other people for the value that they had because I didn't see Jesus. And I couldn't see Jesus until he gave me ears to hear his word. And non-professional students preached simply this, that Jesus saves sinners. And for me, I was under no, there was no mystery to me whether or not I was one of those sinners who needed specifically a savior. I, in fact, had tried to save myself with all, all sorts of other things in my life. And I received that message. I ate it up like it was a, a bag of Cheetos after a fast. I received Jesus and I became his own. And when I was born again in that moment, new life happened in me. I was, 
I was confounded by the mystery that since then I want to dedicate my life to seeing that mystery of how Josh would relentlessly pursue me. He wasn't just trying to be cute. And consider that as you're trying to figure out how am I going to reach my neighbors and friends. Don't be cute. Be relentless. I've been so mystified by how God used Josh in my life that it's emboldened me to, to see how we can enlarge our witness to our friends and our neighbors. I had no interest in Christ's kingdom until I was swallowed up by it all, until I was, until I was present in the gathering, until I heard that Jesus saved sinners and I saw people open this word and I could see myself in this and we were reading the Bible, but the Bible was reading me. Because of that, I'm not just a wannabe baseball player today. And for that matter, I'm not just a, a father or a husband. I am at my core identity, his. I belong to him. But please hear me. In the decades since becoming his, I've allowed a few other things to mute my identity, my calling of who I am, and the imperative, the commandment to, to do what he calls me to do. I've allowed other things like my American conservative identity that threaten to mute who I really am and what I'm called to do. Things that this scripture is about to correct powerfully. So prepare your heart. In fact, stand to your feet, if you will, wherever you are at home. Stand to your feet to honor the sacred reading of scripture. I'm going to read one verse from 1 Peter. It's towards the end. If you get to Revelation or the maps, go back a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I'm going to read other verses around it, but we're going to zero in on verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You can be seated as you pray with me, please. Jesus, come now and light up your truth so that it glows off the pages of our Bibles and burns in our hearts and in our neighborhoods through our proclamation, our witness of you. And give us each clarity and bravery to know exactly how we are to respond to your mercy, how to fully and, and to joyfully surrender to you and to your adventure. Amen. Amen. Y'all, before I go back to this verse and, and go deeper into it, I, I want to go rewind a little bit in the, the book of 1 Peter and give a little bit of an overview for the entire book, and then we'll zoom back in. This, this book was actually originally a letter written by St. Peter to various churches scattered throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. These were churches that were scattered around by persecution and disease. Now, I wonder if the church today, thousands of years later, knows what it's like to be scattered or disconnected by things like this. You see, this, this Bible was written not simply to them, but also to us. And it has relevance for us today. Now, by the time this letter was written, Peter was not the same young, impulsive man that we read of in the gospel accounts. But make no mistake, dude had not lost his capacity, his MO to be abrupt 
and to the point. Peter comes out of the gate swinging in his letter with this glorious gut punch of power. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about this grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Verse 12, things that have now been announced to you, things into which angels long to look. So this huge magisterial explosion of an introduction that encapsulates the entire gospel and the mystery that angels long to look into. The gospel in the first 12 verses. And then after 12 is 13. See, I went to college and I know these things. After verse 12, this gospel account, verse 13 says, Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation or the return of Christ Jesus. So in between his first coming and what he's done, this great cause in the gospel making us born again to this hope, and when he comes back, there's a type of person that we are and a life that we are to live. And the entire gospel accounts, the the New Testament as it is, as it is and the, the, the entire book of 1 Peter functions kind of like this verse here, a therefore. In fact, your life is a great big therefore, an effect about what God has caused through the gospel of Jesus, making us born again. And that's why Peter keeps issuing what I'll call identity imperatives, saying in essence, my summary of this whole book, in essence, Based on what Jesus has done, by his great mercy causing us to be born again, giving this great mercy, making us his, we are now therefore his. That, that is the, the effect of what he has caused. The effect is we are his. That's who we are. That's our identity. And because of our identity, we have some imperatives, some commands. Therefore, if you are his identity, therefore, act like it. Act like you're his. Act like Christians. Essentially, that's my summary of the entire book of 1 Peter. He keeps giving these little identity imperatives in each verse. In fact, that's our whole life, friends. Because of what he's done, the cause, we are now his. And therefore, we have a calling to grow in who we are because of the gospel. That's what he keeps saying in, in this, this, this chapter, the rest of the book, and the whole Bible. Let's go back to verse 13, in fact. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. The, your, your mind is his. He has his re renovated your mind based on what he's done. And, and therefore, set your hope fully on him, meaning more. Eradicate the things that, that bring you uh, less hope. And fill your mind with the reality of what he's done and who he's, he's given. What he's given to make you his and your mind fully his. Your hope fully his. Now, maybe you have reasons to feel anxious today. I mean, in the last few years in this pandemic, have we had real reasons to feel anxious or 
or cautious with different things? Yes. But if you belong to Jesus, you have greater reasons to be full of hope. Reasons that maybe don't erase your other anxieties, but reasons that are meant to subordinate our anxieties. Or check out verse 14. It says, as obedient children, don't go back to live as you were before. So as obedient children, you are, your new identity is you're not just his creation, but because of the gospel, you've gone from creation to sons and daughters, and we are obedient children. So the imperative is to act like that. Y'all, most of our disobedience, in fact, has less to do with our behaviors and the things that we do, and has far more to do with the lies that we believe about who we are. Go to verse 16 of chapter 1. He is holy, and it's implied that you're his if he's made you born again. If you believe in Jesus, you've become a Christian, then you are holy. And so here's the imperative. Be holy. In essence, be who you are. This is the sanctified hashtag you do you of the Bible. Because who you really are is his, and so act and grow as that. Be holy. Do holiness. Be who you really are, not who you used to be, and definitely not who you think you are. Be whose you really are. And to learn who you really are, if you're a Christian, you have to get to know God better. You have to read your Bible. I have students on campus all the time telling me, I don't want to submit to Jesus because in my life I want to be my own person. And there could not be a sadder irony. Because the reality is, if Jesus created you, beautiful, and he did, and you are, if he created you, then as your only redeemer who lived the life you should have lived, and was willing to die the death you should have died and, and rise again from the dead, verifiably in history, to bring us new life. If Jesus is Jesus, then he's the only one who can cause us to be who we truly are, distinctively, in our own way, yes. But without him, we don't have the life and the animation of who we truly are unless he makes us his. Or chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You are born of him, and so, like newborn babies, so long for him, and therefore put away, here's the imperative, if you are his identity, the imperative is put away any malice or hatred. Or maybe delete that post on social media. That was my addition, but then we get to the, the height of these identity imperatives. Back to our main verse, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 9 but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, identity, that you may. Imperative. This is your calling in life. This is my calling in life. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. His light that is meant to progressively vanquish the darkness all around us in our families, in our finances, in our, anxiety, in our anxieties as we proclaim his goodness. Amen. So I'm going to spend the rest of my 20 or so minutes digging even deeper into this one verse. And I invite you to take notes in your Bibles because long after this Peter is, is done talking 
I pray that first Peter, the OG Peter here, would continue to, to bring you life in the Holy Spirit as we savor this rich fudge brownie of a, vi- of a Bible verse, this richness. Now, I'm going to work from top to bottom in verse 9, and I have a summary which functions as my desire, my prayer for us is this, that we display who we truly are and celebrate the one who made us his. Display who we truly are, identity. It's the ver- first part of verse 9. And then the second part of verse 9, that we celebrate the one who made us his. That's our calling. That's our imperative. So first, displaying who we truly are. The, I'm going to read again a third time, the first part of verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Stop there. Now, right away, we can generally observe that these are really big, grand words that Peter is using. One could even accuse him of being extra. I remember a few years ago when a a student first called me, hey, hey, she said, she said, Pastor Peter, you're extra. And of course, I, I grew up speaking English. I was thinking, okay, yeah, extra what? And she, she shrugs her shoulders and says, oh, you're such an old. And I was about to ask her a clarifying question about why she, she used a noun as, uh, or an adjective as a noun until I realized that asking her any further questions probably wouldn't clarify anything. I'd be further confused. But God bless all y'all Generation Zs. You're important too. But I'm learning here. Now, now, actually, was Peter here being extra and using words like royal, chosen, holy? Or, perhaps, this is what I really think, perhaps in light of what Jesus has actually done for us in history, in light of that, maybe our tendency to live as if we were less, maybe that's the real distortion that these great big words are redirecting and vanquishing faithfully. So let's, let's chew on these big words. Let's learn to read slower. First it says, you are a chosen race. He's saying, y'all are chosen race. And you're welcome for my, my Texas ver- vernacular helping to rightly translate this verse. Because he's speaking in second person plural in the Greek. He's saying, y'all are a chosen race. God's choice of you is not qualified by your choices. In fact, it's despite our rebellion. Jesus comes not just to save his friends who are kind of good already. He comes to save his enemies. In fact, chapter chapter 1, verse 3, according to his great mercy, he saved us. He's saying by faith alone. In fact, a better translation of the word race here would be chosen generation. Because those of us who are dead in our sin, in our enmity with God, we are generated by God himself. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, if we have allegiance to King Jesus and he is our Lord and our God, we are descendants of God himself. We're a chosen generation. We are a next royal priesthood. Now, before Jesus... The Israelite priests, the Levites, 
They made sacrifices periodically to represent the atoning work, the forgiveness of God on behalf of the people of Israel. See, the, the Jewish people knew, like every other culture pretty much in history, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Sin is not just some little thing that needs a slap on the hand. It needs death. And so they did these sacrifices to represent the atonement, the canceling of sin. But when Jesus came to the earth, and he lived the life we should have lived, and was willing to trade the consequence of his life for ours, which is death, and he was willing to go to the cross and die for us. He didn't do this to represent the atonement. He did it to forever complete the atonement. And then he rose again from the dead to show his power over death itself and to give us his life. Now, what happens to us when we, with real faith, believe that? Or, or, in essence, align our hearts with the reality of God. What happens is that we become born again, as it says in chapter 1. We become a chosen generation. But it doesn't stop there. Because we are now given the power of this atoning work in the nations. We have authority to speak this atonement-forgiving power. And as... As children of God, we have the power to make peace where there's enmity. We are peacemakers, and by the authority of proclaiming this truth, this gospel, we can bring good news where there is not. We can bring light to the darkness. We can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness. Because sent by the King, we are the royal priesthood, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. Big words for big truths. Now, the, per, the word Peter uses here originally in the Greek is the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicity. So when we believe in Jesus, we are the holy ethnos. What other, other secondary ethnicities we have, we have a greater one, a more eternal ethnicity, a holy ethnos, an identity. Honestly, the the nation of Israel was never holy because of their ethnicity. And to the degree that they forgot that, they wandered from God. See, our ethnicity, our other identities aren't to be erased. They're to be subordinated under this greater eternal holy ethnos. Now for me, especially after growing up in such an ethnically homogenous place like Central Oregon before moving to Texas... I love being a part of every nation. It's a global family of churches. I love being deeply connected to my friend who is planting secret churches in the Middle East. Or my other friend, Ronnie, who's frantically trying to keep up with a revival in Uganda. I love the beauty of the diversity that only the kingdom of Jesus can truly display sustainably. See, especially in this family of churches, we have the good gift of gospel diversity. See, when God gives any good thing, we can dishonor Him by not lifting up the gift and thanking Him for it and stewarding it rightly. And we can dishonor Him him also by, by obsessing over the gift above the giver. My struggle was the first one. See, my failure to recognize the beautiful distinctions, especially my own, was what prohibited me from properly uniting my distinctions harmoniously in worship as 
a, a secondary part and beautiful distinction of our greater identity being the holy nation. See, for far too long, I didn't see how my particular white American lens, through which I read the Bible, for instance, really got in the way of me really truly seeing the truth of the Bible. Listen, family, whatever your secondary identity is, ethnically, politically, nationally, don't be ashamed of it. Because if it's not recognized and subordinated, meaning you know the lens, you know your bias, if it's not given on the altar to Jesus, then your secondary identity could become a false identity in your life, getting in the way of our eternal identity that we are all going towards. See, Peter in this, this book keeps using this word that we are the aliens and we are, are sojourners. The literal word is that we're just passing through. So no matter where we are, where our origins are, where we come from, what we have in common is a united destiny. And so on this earth now, we are the holy ethnos. We're just passing through with our current things. Don't get too comfortable here. We have a great adventure that awaits us. We are the holy nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, in our identity, it's far too easy to see how other people are distorting their identity. Oh, he's confused about his sexuality. She's confused about her patriotism or whatever else. But it's so rare for people to say, God, help me with what I'm confused about. Purify me so I can be all the way, all the, all the more uh, anointed in my journey towards growing in you and my true identity. Lord, help me. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So what that means is, my life is not my own. See, I had to do a little good singing there just because I got some good preaching ahead and I had to keep you on your feet there. You see, your truest and your deepest identity is not something you do for a job and it's definitely not something that you identify about yourself. Your deepest identity is what he calls you. So you can't really know who you are without discovering more and more whose you're meant to be. I can't discover who I really am until I give myself away so that he can use me and grow me. Remember my desire today, that we display who we truly are and that we celebrate the one who made us his. So let's talk about our calling in the second part of this verse to celebrate the one who made us his. We are chosen, royal, holy, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the purpose of us being chosen and set apart by God has a lot to do with our calling to tell others about it. In fact, look at what my, my friend and mentor, Dr. Brian Taylor, our pastor of our Every Nation Church in Cincinnati, listen to what he says about this verse. He says, we weren't just chosen instead of other people, but on behalf of other people. When God set you apart, it was so that he could love you like no one else could love you. But it was also so that he could love your neighbor through your proclamation of his goodness in your life. He wanted to do a work in you that was also on behalf of those around you who would bear witness to it. 
In fact, this word in the King James, this word proclaim is shew forth. And it sounds kind of like show off. We, we, in fact, that's a, probably a, a decent rendering of this original word. In fact, this word is used when the, the angels celebrated the coming of Jesus. They proclaimed his coming. And that's why I say that we may celebrate the one who made us his. Makes me think of Zacchaeus. His, after his first encounter with Jesus, he threw a big party, invited all his shady friends to this party. It reminds me of the, the prostitute from Luke 7, who after having an encounter with Jesus, she interrupted the boring religious party of these other men and started to weep at Jesus' feet and to, to wash his feet with her tears and to dry his feet with her hair. She just decided, I'm just going to have a party of my own in front of Jesus with this weeping joy. And she didn't care who was looking. I want to be like her. She's totally my person. Y'all, our faith, it's personal, but it's not private. So the imperative is that we celebrate Jesus publicly. Evangelism can be as simple as living a celebration lifestyle and spreading Jesus FOMO everywhere we go. In fact, pay attention to the words of this verse. It doesn't say, hey, Jesus made you a, a holy nation, so now you go do something for him. Of course, it doesn't say that here, but why is it that we think that the Bible acts like that? It doesn't say that. It, it says that you may. What Jesus has done for us and who he has made us to be has liberated us to this new, adventurous, celebratory calling. In this moment, God removes our burden of what we think we should do in evangelism as we're reaching out to our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends. In overflow. See, God doesn't want you to just consider what you should do, but he wants to show you what you can do. We don't just have to do things for God, but we can proclaim and celebrate from a place of security and identity in God. So, like the priestess J-Lo implores us, let's get loud. Except loud with the truth of our Savior and not about any other foolishness. Amen? We have a, a, a calling to proclaim His excellencies. And if you're like me these last few years, you've maybe done way too much proclaiming your discontent with how other people are acting. I want to stop talking about how I'm mad about people that, that uh, want to be stuck or others that want to just go to conspiracy theories. I want to talk more about the beauty and majesty and power of Jesus. There's too much goodness that I've received to talk about anything else. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Him. Now give me three more minutes because I want to read the verse after verse 9, which is verse 10. How sad would it be to see the beauty of our identity and our calling through a, a, a shop mirror, as it were, and not have the keys to open that door and, and receive that that are given to us in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is a couplet. It's two parallel statements that say the same thing in a different way. And here's the relationship between them. If you haven't received mercy, you don't have this identity from, from verse 9. 
See, there was a time in my life where I kind of believed Jesus was the God, but I could not demonstrate that he was my God. I believed in mercy, but I had not received the gift. It's almost like I left it under the tree, the Christmas tree, perpetually. The, the, the gift that had been purchased for me, put my name on it, under the tree, I left it there. I had never opened it and made it my own. But when you open it, when you receive the mercy that he's fully paid for, you become his. No mercy, no restored identity. The gospel is the thing that makes us his and that keeps us his. But that's another message. See, only the gospel can set us right and make us a people. Only his mercy. Remember verse 3, according, verse 3 of chapter 1, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. The bottom line, the great mercy seen in the gospel is something that only God can give us. Let me illustrate this for in a few more ways. If I were to die for my wife, who I love so much, it would be at best a loving gesture. But when Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, died for her, it was an infinite act of transformative mercy because it was his perfection sacrificing for our imperfection. Or, or when soldiers, American soldiers, or police officers, or firewomen, or, or firemen, lay down their lives for us, they garner for us certain privileges for which we should all be super thankful. Amen? But their sacrifice cannot cause us to be born again. A, a priest on earth can tell you you're forgiven. They can proclaim it as almost like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. Or, or a life coach can tell you you need to go forgive yourself. But none of them can absolve the very real death sentence that we've earned through our sin. Only a perfect man a perfect person born of a virgin who lives a perfect life demonstrated by healing the sick and raising the dead and who is willing to go and trade his consequence for ours. Only Jesus can offer this and actually deliver on it. And he did all that and it's just, it's just too good to not be true. It's not even fair. It's, it's mercy. The question is, have you received it? Have you made it your own and therefore are you his? And are you turning up more and more in celebration? Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, show us even now how to respond. Jesus, what you did is great. And now would you continue to do a miracle to lift us up in response. For, for those of us who haven't fully given ourselves, not to religion, Jesus, but to you, who fully gave yourself to us on the cross, restore new life. Even now, as you're praying, just say, God, make me new. And God is doing just that, making you new as you pray in your heart. Lord, give them, those who received you and, and received new life just now, give them wisdom with how to, to respond and walk that out with friends and church know the next steps. And for those of us, Lord, who know you, but the celebration of you is being hindered by some other thing, some other busyness, some other uh, anxiety, Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity with what to, to confess to other friends and to you. And Lord, remove those things. Lord, our greatest prayer is this. It's what you gave us. May your kingdom come 
and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.